Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today, it's really a great honor to have Matthew Dillon, who is the Director of Advocacy for the Organic Seed Alliance, based in Port Townsend, Washington, with us. I met Matt at a Seed Alliance meeting uh, that was held up in La Crosse, Wisconsin, prior to a big organic meeting, and I realized that our seeds are in trouble, and as a dietitian, I recognize that seeds are at the heart of all of our first medicine, which is food. So welcome, Matthew. Well, thanks for having me, Melinda. Really good to be here. Matthew, I have to. I asked you this before the show, but I have to ask you again, because you have some very interesting roots. How did you get to be the Director of Advocacy for the Organic Seed Alliance? Well, it definitely was a circuitous route. I grew up in a very small agricultural community in uh, eastern Nebraska, kind of where near the Platte River in Missouri uh, come into confluence, and an agricultural family that did field crops and cattle. My grandparents and my father didn't want me to be involved in agriculture. They saw it as a profession that was really on the ropes and going through difficult times. Farm crisis in the 70s was wiping out farms all over the place in Nebraska, and they wanted it so much that they worked very hard to send me to a boarding school in Nebraska, a Benedictine monastery, that had a organic farm at the time. And that was my first introduction to organics, and that was in the early 80s. However, I, I wasn't really interested in the organic food or farming at all, but it was important, I believe, that I was introduced to it at that point, because years later, uh, in my late 20s, I was a, I'd been a smuggler in Russia and uh, of antiques, and I had an antique shop in Oakland, California, and living a kind of wild life and realized it wasn't really the life I wanted to be living and did some reflection. My father recently passed away and in that reflection process remembered the joy that his five-acre vegetable garden, as he called it, uh, that it gave to him and it gave to me as a kid working with him and my sisters and selling vegetables door-to-door as a kid. And I decided I wanted to get back in touch uh, with farming and in particular in vegetable area and so I closed up my antique store and a month later was a volunteer at an organic farm in California, and a year after that, moved up to Port Townsend, Washington to volunteer with Abundant Life Seed Foundation, a conservation heirloom seed organization, and from my work at Abundant Life, uh, launched Organic Seed Alliance as the founding director back in 2003 with some of the programs starting up in actually 2000. I think your father would be really proud of you. Well, thank you. Well, tell me something. What do you see as being the greatest challenges to our seed today? Well, um, yeah, I'm very happy to talk about the challenges. I think that along with the challenges are opportunities as well, and I know we're going to get to those, but the, the challenges are serious ones that I think uh, both consumers need to be aware of and certainly farmers are aware of on a day-to-day basis. And uh, really the biggest threats to seed are via contamination through genetic engineering as well as concentration of ownership of seeds. And it's important when you look at these two risks to recognize that seed is a a natural resource, much like our forests or our water. It's not simply an input like fertilizer into the soil. It's a living natural resource that continually evolves and changes. It's not static. And like all resources, it has to be stewarded and managed in ways that are sustainable if we want to pass it on to future generations as well as to serve our, our current needs. These two uh, obstacles of concentration from transgenic or genetically engineered materials 
and the concentration and control of, of the ownership of seeds, which has happened very fast, are, are serious threats to the resource and to our ability to, to pass on a natural resource to future generations in a way that's going to really serve their, their needs. You know, I often hear that there's room for both kinds of agriculture, and organic can coexist with with the genetic or the the bioengineered seed and crops. And I always scratch my head, you know, with a because I have a biology background, I scratch my head and I think about the contamination issue, and I wonder if that can really happen. Well, that's a good question, Melinda, and I I, I don't know that I have a, a perfect answer for it. <laughs> I'm not sure it can happen either. Uh, as you know, with a biology background, that one of the attributes of seeds is that they they want to be dispersed. And they want to be dispersed broadly, and they've developed mechanisms for dispersal through animals and wind and other means, and uh, particularly the dispersal of their pollen so that their, their genes can flow into wide populations and continue to evolve into new environments. And so based on that nature of gene flow and seed dispersal, it's very difficult to contain any particular living organism that uh, is seed-derived. Uh, and we've seen that clearly in, in genetically engineered material that they can't be contained, whether it's corn pollen flowing from field to field or whether it's genetically engineered sugar beet roots that the companies are uh, throwing into a compost pile that gets sold to gardeners and the gardeners are transplanting it into their backyard gardens, uh, as happened in the Willamette Valley this last year. It's it's impossible to control. And who is ultimately responsible then? It seems to me, at least from the case that happened with Percy Schmeiser up in Canada, this you know the famous case about his canola being contaminated. But it didn't seem as if the contaminator was the person that was being prosecuted. It was the it was the farmer who had had his land and his crop contaminated. And for the life of me, I just don't understand that. Uh, well, you're not alone in that, Melinda. Most of us are scratching our heads. It used to be a, a common law principle, now going back to uh, European common law, that our, our country's legal system is based on of good neighbor and bad neighbor uh, principles. And that is, if I have an orchard and you have bees and your bees come over and pollinate my orchard and you get honey out of it, we're good neighbors. There's a crossover between our fence lines that's beneficial for both of us. We have no problem. The problem is, is if... Uh, we're neighbors, and you have cattle, and I plant carrots, and your cattle come over and, and chew up my carrots or eat my corn or whatever I'm planting. Uh, there we have a problem, and traditionally, that responsibility for containment would have been on the neighbor who has the biological form that's potentially crossing the boundaries, you, you know, the cattle owner, to put up a fence. So that's what we should expect from our court system when it comes to contamination of genetically engineered materials, but that's not what we have. And one of the tricky things about this is we certainly don't want to get into a situation where farmers are suing farmers or neighbors are suing neighbors. And one of the reasons we don't want that to happen is that the farmers who are planting these these biotech seeds, these genetically engineered corns, they don't even own the seed. They're leasing a technology. When they buy Monsanto seeds, they're leasing this tech, what they call a technology from Monsanto and the companies that sell Monsanto seed, they're not owners of the seed. They don't have the right to replant it. They don't have the right to do anything with it other than grow a crop. So the liability needs to go back to the patent holder. 
And uh, we really need a Farmer Protection Act in this country. There's several states who tried to get those kind of protection acts, acts across, like California. We need a national one in the next Farm Bill, and I think that there, we're going to have a variety of organizations working for such a Farmer Protection Act uh, that will squarely place the, the liability with the patent holder. And when that language comes out, we're going to need consumers like your listeners to get behind it and make phone calls to their representatives and let them know that they do want farmers' livelihood protected and that all farmers should have a freedom to operate and succeed in their markets and not be contaminated by uh, crops that put their markets at risk. Yeah, and it seems like such a basic tenet of life for the farmer to be in control of their own seed and to be able to own their seed. And I don't know the history of how that shifted, but I do like your idea of a Farmer Protection Act, and I think that many of us can get behind that. I should tell our listeners that your website is fantastic. It's simply www.seedalliance.org, and you have a wonderful series of blog entries from your meeting up in Iowa. Do you want to talk a little bit about the concentration meeting that you attended? Yeah, the blog poster at blog.seedalliance.org, but there is a link on that homepage to the blog. It's called the Seed Broadcast. The Department of Justice and the U.S. Department of Agriculture are having a series of workshops around the country uh, to look at concentration in agriculture, potential monopolies in agriculture, uh, not only in seed but also in hogs, dairy, cattle, a variety of, of different areas. The Iowa workshop had a particular seed focus, although it also touched on other areas. And it was really the first time the Department of Justice and the USDA have cooperated in this regard to have these listening sessions. And Secretary of Agriculture Vilsack was there, as well as the Attorney General Eric Holder and many of their staff members. Goals of the workshops are to gather information and to have public discussion around these issues. And also, I believe, to collect information that could lead towards a more detailed investigation into areas where the attorney generals believe there may be monopoly practices going on. And certainly uh, the state attorney generals are also involved in this, and many of the state attorney generals feel that there there are potential areas in need of investigation in, in seed in particular, and uh, soybean prices in seed and availability in seed is one area where an investigation has already been launched. So very historic meetings, uh, a little bit of good news, bad news from my perspective on the floor, we got a lot of lip service from the politicians about uh, wanting to hear, frankly, from uh, farmers and others what the negative impacts were on concentration and on this being a, an open forum for discussion. But the, the panel discussions that were held throughout the day were very biased towards uh, the biotech community uh, with very little representation from uh, those who who had a, a negative perspective on concentration and, and uh, competition in seed systems. So that was a bit frustrating. There was some good news, though. Uh, Christina Varney, who's the attorney with the U.S. Attorney General's Office, who's in charge of the Antitrust Division, did point to utility patents as being uh, of particular interest to them. And just, I guess I want to read just a one-sentence quote she, she gave at the meeting. She said, patents have been used in the past to create or extend monopolies. We will be looking closely at any attempts to do so via abuse of the patent laws. Now, you asked the history of how, or you mentioned the, you know, the history of how we got to this place where farmers can't own their seed. It's the utility patents, plain and simple. Um, mm -hmm. Prior to the U.S. Patent and Trade Office allowing seed companies to patent parts of plants or all of a plant or 
certain traits within plants. Uh, farmers always had the right to save seed, even on seed that was proprietary to a particular company. A farmer could always save seed. A researcher could always save seed for research purposes, and that really, really changed with uh, the patent and trade offices allowing for utility patents on living organisms. Hey, can you tell me for one moment? I have a question, uh, just a terminology question. Mm-hmm. What is a utility patent? Well, I'm not a, a lawyer, so I don't want to get into the difference between a utility patent and a patent, but a utility patent is a type of patent that is bestowed to a particular patent holder, usually a company, for creating something that is new, novel, or innovative, um, some new technology or new tool that is truly considered innovative and novel. And this is one of the problems that we have with the application of patents onto living organisms, is that, for example, patents have been granted now for things as vague as heat tolerance, the traits for heat tolerance in broccoli, or a particular color yellow in a bean, whereas this color yellow in the bean has existed in nature for thousands and thousands of years, and Mexican farmers have been growing these type of beans for that long. And so there's nothing novel except for that someone has described at times the, the genetic components that go into these particular characteristics, these what we call phenotypic characteristics, these expressions. So they haven't invented anything new. They've described something, uh, and that description certainly does not make it their invention. One of the other things that I think your listeners here in this next year can help us do is get behind a push for Congress, who has oversight of the Patent and Trade Office, to have a hearing to investigate whether or not the Patent and Trade Office overstepped its bounds in granting utility patents to plant materials. Because Congress always had oversight over intellectual property of plants, and they did that because they recognized that whatever intellectual property they gave to companies had to allow farmers and researchers to keep innovating and breeding new varieties. That, Going back to my comments earlier, that seed is a living resource that needs to continue to evolve, and so it has to be out there in the fields changing and evolving, and, and farmers and researchers are an essential component of that. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Matthew Dillon, who is the Director of Advocacy for the Organic Seed Alliance. Matthew, I, there are a couple of comments here that I want to make about that you have in the in the blog from your experience in Iowa. One is a statement from Jim Tobin from Monsanto, who says, patents have attracted a great deal of innovation. They allow farmers to make more money. And I, I was just looking at Chuck Bembrook's seed report, and it doesn't look like farmers are making more money at all. In fact, it looks like these patented seeds are actually taking a bigger bite out of the farmer's net income. Well, we have just, the farmers across America, no matter what type of cropping system they're in, have, have been having a tough time. And particularly conventional farmers who are using biotech trades and conventional fertilizer, their bills have been going through the roof the last few years as the cost of oil went up, diesel went up, and the petroleum used for their fertilizer uh, got more expensive, for their fertilizer bills got more expensive, and seed prices went through the roof. Uh, seed prices got to you know over $350 a bag for some biotech corn uh, seed. You know, and this is compared to oh, 10 years ago when pre-biotech trades, you know, seed was in the $75 uh, to $100 a bag range at, at most. 
and so the, the thing that the, the seed companies like Monsanto want to say is our farmers are, are buying value. They're buying, yeah, they're paying more, but they're buying value. Well, when you really look at all of the input costs versus the, the final net profit, it's not working out for farmers. The yields on many of these biotech crops are lower, particularly in soybeans. There's been major yield drag reported. There's been potential long-term damage to their soils, which is very costly. And even when the yields are increased, because it's a commodity market, that doesn't necessarily pencil out to a better net profit for a farmer. They might have a higher gross profit, but not necessarily a higher net because their overall price per bushel will oftentimes drop when it's a, a bumper crop year for other farmers. So it's it's really a very tricky, I would say even sleazy statement to say that farmers are, are, are gaining some net benefit, maybe look very, very, very large-scale farmers. But we heard over and over in Iowa from small and medium-sized conventional and biotech farmers that their input costs are through the roof and their profitability is dropping year to year. They're working more and more off the farm to, to pay for their farming and that many of them are, are losing their farms. Mm. Yeah, and I I sensed from our early introduction that you felt hopeful mm-hmm. despite some of the comments that some of the farmers made. And, of course, I, too, got the sense that farmers really didn't have an opportunity to truly voice what was going on for them at this meeting, which I thought was truly tragic. And I think it's an opportunity for all of us to step up in solidarity with farmers and help really fight to save our food system, starting with the seeds, of course. So getting back to hope. Yes, good. (laughs) There's so much good that is going on, and I'm very lucky and blessed to work in the organic agricultural sector, which has, you know, I'm, I'm not a born-again organic, as some people call it, that thinks it's the silver bullet that's going to, you know, be the salvation of every farm in the country. But I have watched conventional farmers transition to organic and not only find greater economic success, but also have their curiosity and their love of farming reinvigorated. And I, we have a conventional seed farmer who over the several years has transitioned to being a, a 100% organic seed farmer that often speaks at our, our conferences. And that's one of the main things he says is, yeah, I'm making more money. I'm going to be able to stay on my farm. But the greatest value I've received is that I'm, I'm learning again. I'm curious. Every year I'm learning more and more about my farm, and I'm more and more excited to be a farmer again. So I'm, I just want to say that, first of all, I'm, I'm lucky to be in organic because we have a lot of great work that's being done, and particularly in organic seed systems, we have an opportunity to really create a seed system that fits the agronomic needs, the regional and localized needs of farmers, as well as provides uh, the market with a better quality product, with higher nutritional food, with food that has lower input, that's tastier, that's more visually pleasing. And here at Organic Seed Alliance, we work with farmers in the field to do both breeding projects and get involved in other seed enterprises in which we see how taking a different approach to seed systems, one that's more decentralized and and farmer-oriented, really leads to uh, the development of organic varieties that not only help the organic farmer in, the, in their field, but also in their marketplace. So it, that's that's an exciting trend that we're seeing all the time, more and more farmers wanting to get involved in seed. They know that historically farmers were a big part of the seed system. It's only in the last you know, 50 to 75 years that farmers have handed off a lot of their seed work to the private companies, 
and farmers want to reinvigorate their skills and, and you know, get involved in seed. We just heard from someone today, who uh, Saskatchewan farmers of oats up in Canada, who were interested in us coming up to teach them about crop improvement in organic oat production as well as seed production for oats. And they recognize, again, that their grandparents took care of all of their own seed needs in a very regional year, regional way, just uh, you know, a few years back and a few decades back. And they want to get back in that. That's that's one of the greatest successes I see in agriculture right now is how fast farmers are returning to seed systems and want to be involved. And we have to then prevent the contamination. I get back to that. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, we, were, we were so happy going along that hopeful path. But I, I have to go back to the contamination piece. And I, I think it's one that troubles me the most. Yeah. Well, you know, again, some crops were were much more at risk than others. Obviously, you know, canola, organic canola production, for example, in Canada has disappeared. It was one of their larger export markets. Now, non-GE and organic canola basically can't be grown in Canada because there's so much contamination from uh, biotech canola. Corn in the U.S., you know, huge contamination issues. Crops like oats I just mentioned, it's, it's not so much of an issue. So, Yes, we do need to address Farmer Liability and uh, Farmer Protection Act and patent holder liability in those crops that are at-risk crops. At the same time, we need to focus on creating seed systems that are an alternative to the biotech model and reinvigorating both regional seed companies that used to deliver diversity to farmers, as well as our public plant breeding institutions, our land-grant universities and nonprofits like Organic Seed Alliance, that, again, only a few decades ago had a very important role in delivering finished cultivars to regional markets, to minor markets, emerging markets, and and agriculture, and that really no longer do that because our public institutions have had such severe budget cuts and they're now beholden to private companies like Monsanto to to pay for their research. I mean, we saw here at at the hearings you're talking about in Iowa, we were at the Des Moines Community College, not even their land-grant, Iowa State University, but at a community college, they had the Monsanto Biotech Education Center. So Monsanto is going so far. Not only are they funding Iowa State University, their agricultural research school, but at the community college level, they're coming in and giving these gifts, which have a huge influence, of course, on public policy and particularly policy around what's being taught at our public schools and what kind of research is being done. So we, we have to address that. We, we really have to have regulatory reform and better oversight over these public institutions if long-term change is going to uh, happen uh, at the pace we need it to happen. You know, you're so right. I was just looking at the curricula that go into public schools, you know, the K-12, through and I was looking at who wrote the curriculum, who owns it, and what messages are given versus what's not included. You know, in, right. in media literacy, that's huge, not only what's stated but what isn't. And it was very interesting. Uh, Ira Flatow had a program on Science Friday a few weeks ago, a gentleman from Monsanto saying, oh, yes, we have free resources for the high schools and Farm Bureau coming out with curricula for, for K-12. through And the messages, of course, are not, question some of the technology or question the unintended consequences, but this is this is all good. So you raise a very important point. With just a couple of minutes left, I want to give you the opportunity to leave our listeners with a charge. Well, there's several things. One is, as consumers, I do think it's important to know where your food comes from all the way from seed to plate. 
uh, and understand the concentration uh, from the retail sector with the Walmarts of the world and at the level of seed of the Monsantos of the world has a negative impact on local and regional agriculture and success of rural America. And to consider that wherever they're purchasing their food um, and what kind of food they're purchasing. And I would encourage local organic food from regional sources and stores as much as possible. And I know not everybody in America has access to a local food co-op, but uh, I encourage folks to do what they can in that regard. Secondly, there are a variety of organizations to, to follow both on the Internet and to potentially become donors of. Center for Food Safety, Organic Farming Research Foundation, and Organic Seed Alliance are part of what's called an organic seed initiative that really is working in a holistic way to take care of both research, advocacy, policy, legal fights, uh, everything on the on the forefront of seed. And so, you know, I encourage folks to to learn more about uh, Organic Seed Alliance, OFRF's uh, Center for Food Safety, become members, get involved, become donors. And when we put out calls for action, letter writing and phone calls, do as much as they can to, to make those personal calls and make put out those personal letters to our representatives to let them know that we do care about our food systems and our farmers. It's a call for democracy. And I do believe that even though we may feel like a tiny little grain of sand on a big beach, those individual calls and letters really do make a difference. So I just want to thank you, Matthew, for your work and for your organization. I want to make sure our listeners know to go to www.seedalliance.org for some more information. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Matthew, thank you for your time and insight. Melinda, thank you for your good work on this program. Appreciate it.